The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, it's that time of the week for We're All Gonna Die Radio. Cue the sounds of screams and horror. We should have some opening uh, sound effects to go with that. You know, ah! Anyway, I'm David Rothkopf, one of your uh, co-hosts here, and I'm joined as ever by the man who coined the name We're All Gonna Die Radio and who thinks like that all the time, John Wolfstall. How you doing, John? Uh, happy as always, David. Happy as always. You know, uh, I understand why you're not happy, uh, given what you study for a living. Uh, but I know other people who study that for a living, and one of them is our guest, uh, who has been a guest many times here at DSR, who, oddly enough, is the most cheerful nuclear weapons analyst I've ever met. <laughs> um, he just he studies this stuff, and yet his mood is never brought down by it. Joe Serencione is a national security analyst and author with over 40 years of experience, has been a congressional staffer, program director, philanthropist, and advisor to the State Department, and three presidential campaigns. And you can find him at his Substack Strategy and History. How you doing, Joe? I'm just great, David. Thank See? you very much for that kind introduction. See how cheerful he is? Always, the, always. Yeah, well, John, you know, we'll do our best now to bring him down. <laughs> That's that's what we well, do. Well, I promised my wife that I was never going to die. So I'm the living um, contradiction of this, your show. This may be the wrong program for you, Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably is. Um, so let's start. Let's start with something in the news. Uh, one of the things we talk about here a lot is AI. One of the things we, you know, the people in the defense sector like to talk about is AI or extinction events and you know, how AI is just going to realize human beings are the problem and eliminate all of us. Uh, but as is always the case, the more likely um, toll that something like AI may take is not the extinction event. It's its application to other things. We've talked about its application to nuclear war a little bit, but we have not talked about its application to conventional war. Uh, and there have been a couple of articles out this week, uh, one that uh, Joe flagged from 972 Magazine, which is a magazine that covers the Middle East with independent journalism, another in The Guardian, 
about how the Israeli military is using AI to target um, Gaza, and that by using AI, um, they are able to come up with many, many more targets uh, much, much faster than before. And the volume and speed of the aerial campaign in Gaza uh, indicates this. The article is chilling in several respects, not the least of which is, you know, the reference to the fact that, you know, they know exactly or have an estimate of how many civilians will be killed. And then they go, yeah, okay, let's go ahead and do that anyway. But from the point of view of AI technology, the kind of thing we talk about here, one of the parts of this that, that, that caught my eye, Joe, was a reference to, um, you know, well, we always have a human eye pass over this, uh, but they don't need to study it very closely. And, you know, this to me is kind of the big AI problem in a lot of things, where people start to rely on the AI, and the AI is saying, yeah, well, this is a target. And some dude is like, you know, busy or distracted or watching TV or whatever, you know, look at, you know, looks at it briefly and goes, yeah, okay, machine's never wrong. Let's bomb that too. Uh, And, you know, they call this a mass um, assassination uh, uh, factory. Uh, But, you know, this is just the first war in which this is being used. It seems clear that uh, it raises the possibility that future wars, even non-nuclear wars, even wars that don't use drones and robots and all the things we think of with AI, um, can be hugely more costly thanks to this technology. What do you think about it, Joe? I think this is a truly horrifying article. I was stunned when I saw it. I was discussing it just yesterday with several colleagues, some of whom you know, um, you guys know, John Pike, for example. And as far as we can determine, this is the first time artificial intelligence has been used like this, but unfortunately, it probably won't be the last. And this is an underreported aspect of this war. It's just breaking, as you mentioned, the Guardian story, the 972 story. And in essence, what the authors are saying, and this appears to be based on substantial uh, interviews with Israeli intelligence, both retired and and currently serving, is that Israel is a a pro- approaching this war with an entirely new method. Uh, And that method involves three interrelated aspects. One, it's a loosening of constraints regarding civilian casualties. How many casualties are you willing to tolerate? Uh, Two, it's expanded authority for the bombing. So a lower level of of, uh, uh, ranking officers can initiate the strike. And the third and the most serious one is the use of artificial intelligence to generate the target list. Now, you know, John, you have experience with this, you know, in past wars, we generate target lists through a group of usually civilian analysts or military analysts who then put together the the possible targets that have then gone over, usually by a committee to choose them. In this case, AI is generating a list of 100 plus targets a day, which is double, triple, even quadruple what Israel had been doing in past Gaza wars. And then the... um the the military goes through this like a checklist you know let's here's target number 1 let's work through it all and, and moves through it with factory like efficiency hence the title of one of the articles this is an assassination factory the data 
is culled from the from Israel's vast um, information about all the residents of Gaza. They track all the residents of Gaza, know where they live, where they work, and in, that includes suspected Hamas fighters. So what they're plugging in here is a home addresses of Hamas. So when they say that Hamas is embedded in the in the civilian infrastructure of Gaza or is hiding behind civilians, part of what that means is that their Hamas fighters are living with their families. So in, in the Israeli view, those homes become legitimate targets. And this is one of the reasons you're seeing such horrific casualty figures coming out of this war. It is, it is, it is not just mechanized warfare. It's now AI-driven mechanized warfare. And the human in the loop, the thing that's supposed to protect us from uh, AI errors or, um, or mis- mistakes in the programming, is really just a human being who is services as, as little more than a, a, a switch. They go through the list. They see the target that's next on the list. They approve that target. The strike is 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 launched. It's in other words, they become more a function of AI rather than a, a user of AI. John, before you ask uh, Joe a question about this, I'd, I'd love to hear your reaction to this um, because. You know, AI has been around for 20 years, but most people weren't aware of it until a year ago. Chatbot GPT, Chat GPT, um, is came out a year ago this week, um, and uh, so we're in the early days of this. But it does seem likely that you know this kind of technology, like any other technology, will proliferate. Uh, and that this is just something everybody's going to want to have in their system. But the potential toll, uh, as Joe suggested, not just of industrialized warfare, but of age of AI warfare, is sounds much more grievous to me. Um, it, I, I think you're absolutely right, David, that this technology is going to keep spreading. Um, you're, you're shorting it a little bit because AI has actually been around since the 50s. Um, and what it what it really is doing is accelerating pattern recognition, right? We, we have people that have programmed a, a computer that to do what human beings do. Okay, we see that these fighters move to these locations this time of day. If you see these trucks moving to this location, you can predict that they're, they're going to move to that location afterwards after they fuel or get their ammunition, then they're going to move to you know, uh, coordinating points. But what you're seeing now is the political pressure in Israel we got to do this fast, right? We, we may only have a couple of weeks left of international, I won't say acceptance, of tolerance for, for the second wave of this military campaign. And so instead of going to human beings who can be held accountable, who can be held to account under international law if they fail to protect civilian lives or if they make mistakes, um, they turn it over to a computer and say, okay, we need to generate these targets, as Joe said. Um, we can't do five a day, we need to do 50 or 100. And there is this bias that technology is going to do better than the human being, and therefore it's okay. And to be clear, we are already doing some of this in the nuclear arena. Um, This is just the first time we're seeing it publicly uh, uh, revealed that it's being used in the conventional side. Now, that being said, I think we have to be fair. Another development this week was that Henry Kissinger passed away. And I know both of you have views on that. But one of the things of note was that he personally approved each of the 3,000 plus bombing raids over Cambodia. 
So just because you have a human in the loop doesn't mean you're going to end up with fewer civilian casualties. It really depends on what the program is, what the objective is, and is there, in fact, some accountability that's being applied. Um, and in this case, it doesn't appear that there's any additional protections that are being applied to how Israel's going. You know, I've, I thought you were kind of suggesting that Kissinger was kind of, you know, offering up a, a, a better idea of kind of artisanal warfare, you know, <laughs> where, where you know, you know, you you had the personal touch involved in all of this that we're losing. Uh, but that wasn't it, right? That's not what. You're no, no. Well, it, a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, we had Jeffrey Lewis on talking about AI and the idea that you could do decision support through uh, AI enhanced large language models that were basically trained on the literature to help you understand what would happen next in a nuclear war. He called it a virtual Henry Kissinger. That was when Kissinger was still alive. Now, you know, the, the Kissinger can live on and advise even more presidents on how to how to conduct mass casualty you're, you're scare you're, you're scaring me. That's my job, David. How many yeah, times are we going to go over this? Yeah, no. One of the interesting aspects of this is whether um, as, as Israel renews its offensive in Gaza, and now intending to spread to the southern part of Gaza, whether Israel will change any of this. You, may, you probably both heard Secretary of State Anthony Blinken yesterday in, in um, Israel saying that Israel had agreed to a plan to reduce civilian casualties. Well, is that going to be operationalized in stopping this practice of stopping AI generated targets? Is there going to be more selectivity? Are we going to reduce the acceptable number of civilians killed? Every target that's chosen either by this program or previously comes along with a tag that says how many civilians they expect to be killed in this raid, and then you approve it or not. And as the article is discussed, both in The Guardian and 972, in some cases, uh, Israeli officials knew that hundreds of civilians could die, it, but they wanted to get a particular top Hamas commander, and so they justified the the raids. The articles don't say which of these attacks they meant by that, but it seems to be the um, refugee camp that was hit by the largest conventional weapons in Israel's arsenal, 2,000-pound bombs, which devastated square blocks of the camp. It's unclear whether they actually got the target they were after, but the civilian casualties were indeed in the hundreds. So, Joe, I want to ask you, because you, you've been following this so incredibly closely and, and writing both with, with clarity and with conviction on, on your substack. The other, sorry for the pun, bombshell that came out this week was yesterday's New York Times article, which said that Israeli officials knew a year ago the specific details of Hamas's planned attacks and dismissed it. And yet these are, I assume, still the same people that are authorizing artificial intelligence to conduct bombings. And so, you know, artificial intelligence is only as good as the intelligence that guides it. I mean, what are we learning about the failures in Israel's system on this? Well, that's, this makes you question the human intelligence involved in, in all of this, right? And if, if, as soon as you finish this podcast, anyone who's listening to it, I urge you to go to Friday's New York Times or the New York Times website and get this front page right column article that the Times is headlining, or go to the Chris Hayes show uh, on Thursday night where they led with this and Ben Rhodes did a brilliant job of, of taking of dissecting what it means, and the the um, the uh, the issue is that it appears that a year ago, Israel had had gotten a copy of the Hamas plan of attack, 
exactly what they did October 7th with incredible detail, not some general bin Laden intends to attack America, the kind of security briefing that George W. Bush got in, in August of of 2001, a month before the September 11th attack. No, this was detailed with targets, with the number of, of troops that would be allocated, with the details of using drones to knock out the communication towers, the use of paragliders to come in, use of bulldozers, to, uh, everything, everything that they actually did was in this article. It's, it's, it's stunning. It's, it, it, and what it represents is an appalling lack of, um, of insight uh, from the, is, the military and civilian leadership of Israel during this time. Remember Benjamin Netanyahu's government came to power at the beginning of this year. So it was his people who were getting these reports. It's unclear if Netanyahu himself ever saw this uh, and and rejected them at saying that these were unrealistic, that this document was just uh, uh, aspirational and that Hamas could never pull off an attack like this. And you coupled this with reports on Haaretz, the liberal Jewish newspaper who talks about uh, spotters, what they call spotters, is IDF, Israeli Defense Force um, uh, personnel who were assigned to track Hamas activity personally. Most of these are women. Most of these are deployed forward right near the Gaza border. And they were reporting in the months before the attack increased activity. And they were raising the alarm about this was highly unusual. Something was coming up and they were dismissed by their male superiors who discounted all this. So you realize you have a massive, not just an, not, it's not an intelligence failure. It's like 9-11. The intelligence was there, but superior political and military office rejected it because of ingrained beliefs that this was not going to be a threat, that their greater priority in this case was on the West Bank and that's why they moved forces from the Gaza border to the West Bank um, to, to expand settlers, uh, se settlements over there. And it was this sort of ideological um, uh, orientation, this mistake that the real threat is over in the West Bank and not in, in Gaza that resulted in this enormous failure, even though, as the New York Times points out, they had the intelligence that should have warned them of what was coming. So. You know, this raises an interesting conundrum, which in some respects is the core AI conundrum. You know, one possibility is, you know, you talk about the Kissinger bot, and I could hear it with, hello, hello, John, what do you need today? <laughs> um, uh, this comes from my two years of working with Kissinger. But, um, you know, uh, his initials were H-A-K. He was always referred to in the office as Hack. Um, so you could imagine that there is <laughs> respectfully, one, respectfully, one bot called the Hack Nine Thousand bot. John will appreciate the reference, right? Thank to you. Two thousand and one, a space Hal, Odyssey, of course. Right, Hal, right? Um, uh, which is pretty frightening because I, I seem to recall that in two thousand and one, a space Odyssey, at one point, Hal Nine Thousand goes, "You know, Dave, I'm losing my mind." You know, he, he, is, right. he is a bit of a, a meltdown. But so the Hack 9000 bot, however, because all AI um, has embedded biases and the embedded bias could be, you know, let's bomb now and ask questions later. On the other hand, um, you know, human overlays have been important. Of course, I know both of you have as your own personal hero uh, Stanislav Petrov, 
the uh, Russian officer who decided not to launch a nuclear war, even when you know the systems were saying let's launch the nuclear war. And so there's your choice. You know, you've got the Hack Nine Thousand bot or the Petrov bot. You know, and they've both got a bias built into them, um, and it's going to be hard to sort that out. I would add, by the way, just going back to what John was talking about earlier, that you know, it's one thing to say, well, we'll apply AI to the same kind of inputs most military targeters have. It's another thing to say, we'll apply AI to all the data that exists everywhere in the internet, and we will use bits of that if we think it meets a pattern that suggests we should target, which could be phone calls, it could be pictures, it could be any other kinds of things that exist out there, which raise the potential for, for targets much higher, potential for mistakes much higher. So just let me, I'd love to hear you, John, and you, Joe, respond to this internal tension in the design uh, and implementation of AI assistance. Yeah, uh, David, I think you've put your finger on a really core challenge, which is um, the people who um, are designing and wanting to apply large language models or machine-generated Intel, um, I I think they're well-intentioned, right? They want to help political leaders um, manage these issues efficiently and effectively. Um, I don't think there's anybody out there who says, yes, let's apply uh, machine-generated programming to uh, early warning data so that we can jam the president and force him to launch. They're trying to save him or her time. But in the back of their minds, they also believe that um, presidents and secretaries of state aren't really steeped in these issues, and so we need to guide them. And so that's where the bias comes into the programming that uh, if they see things that look like a launch, there will be building pressure for them to launch. Um, but I think also inherent in this is, is this, you know, um, this hubris that somehow we can control this technology, that we're going to be able to say, well, you know, that people talk about this, we'll always be in charge of the machine, right? We'll always have a human in the loop or on the loop. But in fact, that's never been the case. This technology has always grown beyond the bounds, um, whether it is nuclear accidents, whether it's release of radiation or chemicals or biological agents. And so I just think the lack of humility when it comes to how this is going to be applied is a problem. There, but at the same time, I think we also have to recognize that there are a bunch of leaders we probably don't want to just turn the nuclear keys over to. And part of the the pressure here is to how do we insulate the system from leaders that may not be up to the challenge? And in the Israeli system, I think there's probably a strong argument that, you know, they were getting a lot of political yes men being put in charge of the security, intelligence, and defense complex. And maybe they realized that they wanted to have some machines inserted into the system so that they could just do whatever they wanted when they wanted. Yeah, Joe, I mean, what 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 John's saying is um, another of the conundrums that lie in the middle of this. Because to say we'll always have a human in charge is not that comforting when you know what happens when humans are in charge, right? Sometimes they get it right, the Petrovs. Sometimes they they get it horribly wrong. What's your reaction to this? Well, with all due respect to your service with Henry Kissinger, when Henry Kissinger was making the decisions he made in Cambodia, in Laos, in Vietnam, in East Timor, in, in Bangladesh, 
you know, there was no AI involved. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to point out that I was in junior high. So let's. I I understand you joined up with Kissinger much later (laughs) in his consulting business. I understand that. But that's, you know, I'm, I'm struck by just how many people Henry Kissinger's decisions have killed. I mean, it's, it's in the millions as a result of the policies he, he authorized and, and promulgated. And as John, as you said, the individual targets that he approved in his escalation of the Vietnam War by the strikes, illegal strikes in Cambodia. No, he was the human. He was the loop. He was the whole thing. And it was those decisions that then were implemented by the uh, U.S. military command or the command of our, our allies at the time that resulted in these deaths. So yes, obviously we can get massive human unnecessary uh, civilian deaths in, in, in warfare, even without AI. But what's obviously terrifying about this is this aspect of losing even more control that, you know, that, that the, the fear and what you hear in many of the discussions is the fear that we're moving towards autonomous kill vehicles. We're moving towards a, 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 a autonomous weapons that are programmed and are then and then out of human control as they go and conduct their their mission. So you know, ballistic missiles are autonomous weapons. Once you launch them, you don't have control over them anymore. You can't destroy them in flight. There is no destruct button. They're programmed to hit a target. Once you launch them, they're going to hit that target. But what we're talking about here is applying that same sort of um, te- technology to a smarter drone that's programmed to hit a kind of target and is authorized to go seek out those kinds of targets and make decisions on whether when they're in flight, whether they're going to hit those or not. And now with Israel, you see this at a whole other level. And this, I can't stress this enough. I don't think we've seen this anywhere before where the entire operational plan of a military in its attack is being driven by machines driven by machines who are choosing the targets based on a database that may or may not be be valid. And then the humans are simply there to implement the instructions generated by the machine with very little decision process. And they're particularly given the pace of modern warfare, there's no real time for the decisionists. And then you, you may well have, and one of the articles notes this, a number of the military commanders in Israel are what they called trigger happy, and they're more than willing to inflict mass destruction on the people of Gaza in order to accomplish what they believe are their political objectives. Th- this all gets very scary very quickly. And what frightens me is not so much is, is not a- alone the incredible human toll that we're seeing on the 2.3 million citizens of Gaza, but on what this means for future wars and where this is going to go next. And every war serves as a testing ground for new weapons, for new techniques, new technology. And I'm afraid this Gaza war is, is for, it, it foreshadows truly horrifying prospects for what can come next in the next war, wherever it is. Um. This is the point in the podcast where we take a break. We say to everybody who's listening out there, if you're in the general public and you're not a member, unfortunately, this is about as far as you can go. The rest of the podcast is members only. Uh, It's only $5 a month to be a member. You go to the dsrnetwork.com. You click on membership, uh, and then you can get access to the other 33% of all of our podcasts, which are full of interesting things, like I know we'll follow this break. Um, and it helps us to do what we do, which is try to provide in-depth expert views on issues that are absolutely critical 
views you can't get somewhere else. Um, so if you're not a member, become a member. If your friends and family aren't members, give them a membership for Christmas. Uh, for now, if you're not a member, thanks very much for joining us. And if you are a member, stand by. 